May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. At one time, everyone thought that Job was the most lucky person. He was the luckiest guy in the whole neighborhood. And not just lucky, he was blessed. He had everything, everything materially a person could want. He had cars and houses, family and friends. He had, um, he had all the camels and goats and whatever else you wanted in the ancient Near Eastern world. He had, um, he had creature comforts. He had a thriving business. He loved to throw parties and everybody wanted to be on the guest list because Job served the best wine. He had the best food. There was, you know, great bands that came and played. It was, it was fantastic, this guy, this fellow Job. Lots of friends. Lots of acquaintances. Everybody thought well of Job. He had it made. But hey, listen, there was more to Job than just that. It was more than just the fact that he was blessed, that he was wealthy, that he had great family and friends. He was also a really, really good and decent person. He took care of people. He was helpful to his neighbors. He was gentle and humble and kind. I think that people probably looked at Job and they sort of, you know, envied a little bit of his success. I mean... He was head and shoulders above everybody as far as everything that they could measure and quantify. But I think they also thought this about Job. No one deserves it more. I mean, good old Job. He really is a good fellow. He really does help people. He, he's really a, a great guy. And, you know, fact is, nobody deserves it more than good old Job. And I think that Job's closest friends thought this too. Um, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the uh, Namathite, they all thought the same thing about Job. They were his closest buddies. I think these three guys, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, I think they go way back with Job. Don't hold me to this. It's not in the text. It, it, it should be, but it's not here. I think they went to college together. I mean, I think they were fraternity brothers together. And you're saying to me... Do you really think they were fraternity brothers? No, I don't really think that. But I think it was something like that. That they went way back. They knew Job when Job was just a budding entrepreneur. They knew him before he was Job the uh, Magnificent or whatever he became. They knew him when he was, you know, he was a fellow like them, you know, who lived in the dorms and, and did silly pranks and all the sort of things that college kids do. I think they went way back. Yeah, and I think this because if you look at what happens to Job, this great calamity that befalls him, and everybody sort of disappears from Job's life. No more parties, no more friends, no more people hanging out. But Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they hang around for the whole time. I mean, they don't offer particularly good advice. But they're there. Um, they, they don't say particularly helpful things. But they are there. They are there when no one else is there. Hey, look at what happens to Mrs. Job, okay? Early in the book we find out Mrs. Job, that Job is married, he has, he has a wife, and Mrs. Job is around. And, and, um, and on day one, you know, uh, after you know, the first day of his big calamity, his, his business is robbed, okay? 
He has three different locations, and all three are robbed. People come and steal all his stuff. And then a tornado hits the house of his oldest son, who happens to be throwing a birthday party, and everybody, all of his family dies. His seven sons, his three daughters, they all die. On a single day, Job had his businesses robbed before insurance was invented, and, um, and his children all die. And then, very shortly after that, he develops this sort of skin disease where he has these boils that begin to pop up all over his body. In fact, it says from the very sole of his foot to the tip of his head, he was covered in these boils. And do you know what Mrs. Job says? Oh dear, it's okay, we'll get through this. Hang on, it'll be all right. No, that's not what Mrs. Job says. Mrs. Job says this, I wish you were dead. She says, why don't you just curse God and die? I'd be better off without you. But not Eliphaz, not Bildad, and not Zophar. They're still there. They hang around. They're there when no one else is there. And I think their willingness to stay around, to stand by Job, says a lot about who they are. But even though they do... They still, they still have a little bit of a problem with Job, you know. They, I think that maybe they haven't been living in the same neighborhood, you know. They, they show up, they hear all the calamity that's going on, but, but they come and they, they try to comfort Job. But they say to him, listen, Job, you know, people don't suffer like this for no reason. You know, you probably have done something to deserve this. This is this shows that they're really good friends too, right? I mean, if you have a really good friend, when things start to go wrong and all other explanations uh, are out the window, your really good friend will say, "Hey, maybe it's your fault." Do you ever have a friend like that? Somebody who actually gets in your grill, you know, a little bit, and they they say, mm, "Maybe, maybe it's you." You know, if you have someone like this, count yourself lucky. Someone who would have the courage to say, "Hey." Maybe it's you. And, and to be honest with you, for about 32 chapters, this is what they do. They get in Job's face and say, hmm, maybe it's you. Because, Job, you're suffering in a way that no one else has suffered before. Your, your suffering is, is really unique. And in fact, I don't think that God would let you go through this unless there was some reasonable explanation. Maybe, stand with me, maybe, just a minute... Maybe, Job, you're harboring some sort of sin in your heart. Maybe you're not coming clean, you know. Is there another woman? Hmm. Have you been cheating your neighbors? Have your business dealings been on the up and up? Uh, I mean, are you, are you, are you crushing the, the poor in your neighborhood? I mean, when the poor widows come to you and beg for help, are you helping or are you sending them away? See, I, I think maybe there's something that you're not telling us. Listen to chapter 2. This is Eliphaz, Job's frat brother, who says this to him. In chapter 22, it's not in our text today, but it's the previous one. Job, you're suffering because you're a first-class moral failure. This is from the message, by the way. Because there's no end to your sins. When people came to you from help, you took the shirts off their back, exploited their helplessness. You wouldn't so much as give a drink to the thirsty or food, or even a scrap to the hungry. And there you sat, strong and honored by everyone, surrounded by immense wealth. You turned poor widows away from your door. Heartless, you crushed the orphans. Now you're the one trapped in terror, 
paralyzed by fear. Suddenly the tables have turned. How do you like living in the dark, sightless, up to your neck in flood waters? Ouch! <laughs> you know, this is his buddy. This is his, this is his best friend who says this to him. Truth is, Job, you're really not the person everyone thinks you are. Come on, tell the truth. And Job digs in his heels and he says, that's not true. That is absolutely not true. I have not done any of that. The things that you're accusing me of, I have not done. I've not lived that way. I've lived actually the opposite of that. In fact, that's where our lesson today picks up. In chapter 23, Job answers his friends. He says, today my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Let me paraphrase this for you. Stop it. You guys are killing me. I can't handle you keep saying that because it's not true. I have done nothing to deserve this punishment. I'm not letting up, he goes on to say. I'm standing my ground. My complaint is legitimate. God has no right to treat me this way. It's not fair. Have you ever said that before? (laughs) This is not fair. It is not fair that Michael Jordan can play basketball like that and baseball and he's a great golfer. I can't stand him. You know, um, it's not fair. It's not fair that Bill Gates can drop out of college and become a billionaire. That is not right. You know what I mean? I went to college forever, for 10 years, you know, and and I'm only a billion dollars away from being a billionaire. It's not fair that... It's not fair that my brother Jeff would always get a larger slice of pie when we went to my grandmother's house. I could see it. I knew. A lot of things that, yeah, you had that too. A lot of things that aren't fair. Poor Job. Faithful husband, loving father, shrewd businessman, but good and decent and generous. A religious man who had everything and then lost everything. And his only, his only way to respond is, Why? What have I done? What have I done to deserve this? Did you listen to the lesson? He says, you know what? I wish I could just go storming into the, the, to the, the, the uh, gates of heaven. If I could just bust in there and get in front of God, I would lay my case before Him. I'd bring Hal along as my attorney. And I'd go right there and I'd lay out my case. It'd go just like this. I have done nothing wrong. You know I've done nothing wrong. I have lived righteously. I have helped poor people. I've I've helped the needy. When widows and orphans came to me, I gave to them. I was faithful to my wife. I made a covenant with my eyes. He says later in the book, I wouldn't even look at another woman. I've done everything I can to be a good, upright, decent person. God, you know this is true. There's no good reason for my suffering. Job says it was like coming to a door that was shut. The door is shut and it seems like no one is on the other side of the door. But if you look real close there in verse 10, he says this, But he knows the way I take. That is God. God knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job has a great revelation here, doesn't he? He says, you know, I don't understand why I'm going through this, but this is some sort of test. God has taken me through some sort of test. I don't know how long it's going to last. 
I don't know how worse it can get. But at the end of this, I'm going to come out okay. When we were um, young parents, I remember when we had our, you know, our first little boy, you know, and um, and that little baby. You remember how those babies cry, and then and then you um, you, you feed them a little bit, and you rock them, and and you sing to them, and that's when I sang to them. That's probably why they cried more. But Abby would sing to them, and 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 she would sing hymns to them and lullabies, and and they would go to sleep. And and I remember that first little boy, you know, getting him to sleep every day. And then as he got a little bit older, um, you know, you would uh, pass him off to me. Um, and, and then I could get him to sleep every now and then. And, and when he was real little, he would wake up and you'd have to go in there. And usually Abby would have to go in there. And uh, she would rock him back to sleep. And, but then he got about a year old. Remember that year old kind of little baby? If you, if you, you, you get him to sleep and you, you think, if I can get him to sleep... And they can stay asleep. This child could sleep maybe, you know, six or seven hours. Maybe we'd get through most of the night. And you'd get them to sleep and we'd go in there and, and lay that, you know, 11, 12-month-old baby down into his crib. And you tried to do it. You remember, tried to do it really, really gently. You know, like, just ease that baby down into that crib. And hope that he just stayed awake or stayed asleep because if he woke up you had to go back to you know all over again back to the rocking back to the ceiling back. we even like WD-40 the, 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 um, the hinges on the door you know so that you could you know, close it without, knew where the squeaky boards were in the floor and then we get to the, and then you know what happened they would wake up and start all over again and, and so we started reading the books you know the, the parenting books we read all all the our poor kids, their therapy bills are going to be so huge, and it's Simon and Schuster's fault. You know, it's not mine. Uh, we we um, we read all the books, and one of the books said this: put them in the bed, tuck them in, kiss them, walk over, shut off the light, close the door, and let them cry. Did you, did you guys read that book? Um, we were horrible people. We, we read the book and we did it, you know. And so we put that baby down in the bed and covered him up and kissed him and pat him on the head and, and walked to the door. And he was up standing. You could see, you know, grabbing hold of the, the little jail cell, you know, that he's in. And he's screaming. And, and we flip off the light. It got real dark in there. We shut the door and he would scream. Scream, I'm telling you. And you know what we did? We slouched down on the other side of the door. And we sat there and held our breath and shed our own tears and just prayed that he'd go to sleep. And after a while, we do this night after night after night, pain and our, you know, parents listening to your child cry. But then one night we take him in and lay him down and he grabs his little way to the poo and he rolls over and he doesn't jump up and he doesn't cry and he just goes to sleep. And we knew we had turned the page. But you know what? We never got angry at that child when he cried. We knew he couldn't understand what we were doing. And when he was three years old and we had to teach him all over again, we didn't get upset with him then either. We got a little bit weary with him. And when he was five years old and did it all over again, we didn't. We never got angry with him. We never hated him for it. We knew he couldn't understand that even though that it was dark in the room and the door was shut, that there was somebody on the other side of the door. Every one of us, every single one of us is called to suffer sometime or another. 
Every, every single one of us is called by God to walk through some dark day. Some time where it's going to seem like the light's out and the door's shut and nobody is there. Nobody's listening. And you want to say, why? Why? And maybe like a little baby, you know, you're, you're grabbing hold of the, of the crib and you're shaking it and saying, no, this isn't right. Maybe your friends come around and say, you know, it's all your fault. And you say, no, it's not my fault. I did nothing to deserve this. But listen, when you get to that time where you're all alone and it's really dark, it doesn't mean that there's not someone on the other side of the door. Because there is. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.